0: Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends show each other a movie that no one <laughs> no one. <has> ever seen. <laughs> Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends show each other a movie that the other one hasn't seen, and we're delighted to announce that this week it's very true cuz we're going to watch 1963's Charade starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. I'm Brie Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. And Chris Kelly, you have never seen this
1: movie. Is that right? That is correct. I want to say I don't think I've ever seen an Audrey Hepburn movie, which I feel like excludes me from being gay. I'm so sorry.
0: Chris Kelly is no longer gay. Uh, (laughs) We're breaking news right here on Replaying Favorites. Um... You know, I don't want to say too much about this movie. It's a fun romp with someone who was also maybe gay, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. It's kind of a mystery tied up in a slightly romantic comedy. Walter Matthau is also in it. Uh, And a couple other friends from like the 60s and 70s that I think you'll recognize, but it's definitely not going to pass the Bechdel test. I don't think there's a second woman in this bad boy.
1: Oh, it was the late 60s, early 70s. I can't imagine that any films from that time period past the Bechtel test.
0: Why would two women want to speak to each other about something other than a man?
1: <laughs> Beggar's belief. Oh, I am very much looking forward to seeing this. I feel like Charade was on my general list of like, eventually I'll watch this films. So this is a welcome addition to our podcast. I'm ready.
0: Now I have some questions about which ones were unwelcome additions to our podcast.
1: The Dark Crystal, for starters. <laughs> that was unwelcome, to be perfectly honest. Well, listen, I've set the low bar, and this will certainly clear that. So I'm looking forward to what happens when we discuss this after the break.
0: We've come off a rough couple of weeks. And this week, we're going to try to reset the balance into something that we both enjoy spending our time on with 1963 Charade. We'll see you after the break. And we're back from the break. We have both watched 1963's Charade. Uh, This is one that also requires a little bit of a spoiler alert, but like, it was made in 1963. Get it together. (laughs) Just a quick overview of the plot. Coming home to find her apartment empty and her husband murdered, Reggie, played by Audrey Hepburn, enlists the help of a charming man she knows nothing about, played by Cary Grant to help her escape the clutches of three men who are looking for $250,000 that they and her husband stole from the U.S. government. Also involved are the French police and Bartholomew, a CIA agent played by a young Walter Matthau, who wants the money back in U.S. hands. A whole bunch of double crosses and four Cary Grant identities later, we learn that Reggie's husband hid the money into some valuable stamps and that Walter Matthau is also one of the bad guys. Cary Grant uh, kills Walter Matthau, which come to think it is not addressed further. And Hefford and Grant go to the embassy to turn in the money. And in a final twist, Grant actually worked for the Treasury Department the whole time and makes a funny face and then proposes marriage. This movie was directed by Stanley Donan. It stars Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, Walter Matthau, James Coburn, George Kennedy, Dominique Minot, Ned Glass, and Jacques Moran. It was made for $3 million, and it earned about $13.4 million at the box office. And some have called it the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made. But more importantly, Chris Kelly, what did you think of Charade?
1: So this is a tough one to evaluate for me because I think this is two to three different movies in one and i definitely liked one of them but i think the movie that i liked was not the movie that this movie wanted to be ultimately so i was never quite on the same page with it i was entertained but every time it turned left i was like hey we should have gone right it was sort of like the movie sent the taxi off
0: but then hid behind the other taxi while you followed it
1: it was almost a death becomes her thing the setup had me thinking that we were going to go in a very different direction than we did The plot really wanted to be invested in the spy movie kind of machinations of who's going to get the money. And I wanted to watch Audrey Hepburn slowly unravel the story of her husband's life. And that was not part of this film much. They kept hinting (laughs) at it. She kept sort of doing it. But I think as a relic of the time, her character was mostly being a romantic object to be chased. She was She was kind of a ninny, if I'm being honest.
0: Yeah, I was going to save this for later, but one of my notes for topics to cover is,
1: is Reggie smart? Oh, no, she's not. Uh, I want her to be, (laughs) but she is constantly not just one step, like seven or eight steps behind everybody.
0: I think that's one of the problems with the movie is that the movie can't decide if Reggie is capable of figuring out the plan or not. She does a couple really smart things. I already alluded to her hiding behind the taxi while sending it off to allow Cary Grant to chase her. Like, that's really smart. She is a simultaneous translator for UNESCO, but then she's also just like totally uninterested in her husband's backstory and life and is willing to trust Cary Grant, a man that she has no reason
1: to trust because she does not know him. Yeah, I think you're right that it's not that she's never smart. It's just that the movie doesn't care about her smarts. That was what I was in it for was, oh, this lady's going to do some smart things. And yeah, like the hiding behind the taxi bit set me up to think that we had discussed how a woman could be a better spy than a man. And I was like, she's going to be the best spy in this movie. And then she wasn't.
0: My partner had not seen this movie in a long time, long enough to forget what all the twists and turns were. And he was really disappointed that Audrey Hepburn didn't wind up being the thief herself. The ultimate twist has been done so many times by the time you get to the end that it's just kind of like, oh, okay, sure. But it's not as exciting as that first reveal that Cary Grant is not who he says he is.
1: Yeah. A big issue that I had with this script is that the story is more concerned with having several twists than making them make sense. Because by the time we get to like the fourth or fifth one, we've spun so far off the rails that none of the actions from the beginning make sense from anyone's perspective once you know who they really are.
0: Yeah, and there were a couple of things that me watching it as a person who knows what happens, there are parts of the movie that don't make sense. Like in the scene with the orange where they're passing the orange back and forth between people's necks, After Cary Grant passes it to Audrey Hepburn, she then turns and passes it to one of the guys who's chasing her. And Cary Grant has turned his entire back to her for the entirety of their confrontation. And if you're watching the movie straight, you're just like, wait, Cary Grant, who's been with her all night and who they just had this sexy orange thing, is now totally uninterested in watching her give the orange to someone else. The reason for that is that the script requires it because they have to get folded into this overly complicated story.
1: I have questions about everyone's motivation through most of this. Usually with a movie like this, it's really fun to watch it a second time because you get to see the pieces being laid out. I think this would actually be really unsatisfying to watch a second time. The first time, it was at least exciting to see like, oh, it's this happening. Oh, it's that thing. If I watched it again right now, I'd be like, well, this just falls apart immediately.
0: It doesn't fall apart. I definitely had some notes where I was like, oh, this doesn't make any sense because of X. And then I was like, oh, no, like they have structured it appropriately so that there are, if not no, very few mistakes in continuity in terms of how the characters interact. That being said, I find the rewatch of this much more fun as a Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant hangout movie than anything else, because the two of them are having such a great time together. And that is one of the fun pieces of the movie for me.
1: Yeah, that's another part that I was like, This movie is half spy movie, half romantic comedy. And of those two, I would have preferred the romantic comedy. Like, it's taking itself too seriously to just be a romantic comedy, but it's not good enough at the plot to just be a spy movie. And I wish they had leaned more into, like, this is a movie where Cary Grant showers with his whole suit on. That's the part that's the (laughs) most fun for me.
0: It's so fun. It's really sort of a noir thriller mixed with a old-school Cary Grant screwball comedy. There is actually a really interesting kind of backstory to this movie that I hope you did not research. This was the second-to-last movie that Cary Grant ever made. Uh, this is kind of his last, like, big hurrah, to be perfectly honest. And Audrey Hepburn was in the middle of her career. Mathow was at the beginning of his. In fact, this is before The Odd Couple and everything else. And it's also kind of one of the last big classic Hollywood glamour movies. It comes out at a time when all of the old school people like Bogart and what have you have passed away. Also, the movies were getting a little grittier. People didn't want to see as much like fantasy Hollywood as much as they wanted to see like a gritty dramas like The Rise of Hitchcock. So this is one of those last kind of fun European set movies with no consequences and just a good frilly ride. And that wound up being really, really important because John F. Kennedy got assassinated two weeks before this movie was released. And it was sort of a catharsis movie for people where the nation had just gone through this incredible, terrible tragedy. And people went to this movie to try to like take two hours to not feel like their brains were going to explode, which I can relate to.
1: It is funny that this is considered the lighter fare that they were going for because it is full of gun violence.
0: It's very violent, but I think it sits in this place between those two periods and, you know, as kind of a, a bookend on the old one that was passing on because you see parts of it that are like that screwball romance and then other things that feel very 60s like, them at the club doing the kind of sexy orange thing where people feel more like you feel the 60s beginning in this movie, I think.
1: Again, it's two different movies like that sparkling, bouncy dialogue that Hepburn and Grant have in their first meeting on like a ski slope somewhere being silly. You wouldn't expect from that conversation that this is a movie with a body count. I mean, I guess the first scene does have a man being thrown bodily from a train. So there is a body (laughs) count before that. But you know what I mean?
0: It's a surprisingly gritty movie. In particular, in that fight scene that Cary Grant has with George Kennedy, it is very long, but also very violent and realistic. And then he miraculously survives hanging from a what? Five story building. So you can feel the discomfort that this movie has trying to do too many things at once, both in terms of its story, but also trying to serve the time period in which it was produced.
1: Yeah, that was the tension for me. There are definitely parts of this movie and they're the bouncier parts that it's comfortable with that I was really into. Like there's such a buoyant energy that both of its leads can bring to it. And I think they're most comfortable in some of that material, too. Like, I just wanted them to stick in that lane. And whenever we got too serious, I was like, guys. uh."
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's step right back. This movie is known for its costumes and its graphic design and especially its Mancini score. I love the Mancini score of this movie so much. Like, the opening number is so boss.
1: I was really into that credits sequence in general. It's also like a fun sort of squiggly line animation dance thing. Like I felt more connected with a plain text opening credits than I ever thought I could. So this
0: movie comes out a year after Dr. No, which is the first James Bond movie. And I think you really get that feeling of that sort of spy thriller intro.
1: I have absolutely no complaints. Yeah. And again... The feeling from that intro is that this movie will be a little zany. It's bright colors, it's squiggly lines, it's bouncy music. It just feels like we are in for a more buoyant, frivolous experience.
0: This movie likes to have fun and be a little screwy. So we're then immediately introduced to Audrey Hepburn, who is just chowing down. That woman never stops eating in this movie. I love it more than I can possibly say Oh, I thought maybe you had something to say about that.
1: You took another breath. So I thought you were going to complete a thought and I was going to let you do that. I almost never do. <laughs> I was so into this first scene. She is in what appears to be a brown fabric spacesuit.
0: I love it. There... It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And then you see a gun being drawn on her. And so the stakes are all over the place. And it really messes with your expectations about what's about to happen. And then, of course, it's a water gun and the world's most obnoxious child. It is such an amazing casting choice of a child that you will hate on sight and not care about and hate for the rest of the film.
1: Oh, my God. Put that child in a fucking blender. I was (laughs) ruinously angry at him from the get- And when he continued to be a character, I was livid.
0: (laughs) In fairness, they do dress the child later in a sweater and hot pants. And (laughs) it's so perfect. And what that child deserved, though, possibly not what that young actor deserved. I'm sure he didn't deserve it. But Jean-Luc or whatever the boy's name is absolutely deserved it. Oh, fuck that
1: kid. Yeah, no, uh, I'm going to preserve that child's anonymity and let him live out the rest of his years in peace.
0: We are also introduced at that point to Sylvie, uh, Reggie's only friend. I believe this movie in that moment may pass the Bechdel test because they talk about her divorce and vaguely about her feelings, but it's not real serious. Audrey Hepburn's character in this movie is such a cipher. Like, what is her deal?
1: Yeah, I realized that we were not going to care about her at all when... This is jumping ahead a little bit, but when the police question her, and they're like, what do you know about your husband? And she doesn't know literally anything, and no one is like, what was your marriage like that you don't know a single fucking fact about this man? Like, I get the finance thing, this is the 60s, it was the man's job to take care of that shit or whatever, but she doesn't know anything. It's like she's never met him.
0: I think the movie is uninterested in separating Audrey Hepburn from Reggie. I don't think you're ever supposed to see either Cary Grant or Audrey Hepburn disappear into these two roles. And that allows them to just not flesh Reggie out whatsoever. How long were they married? Like, what were their days like? How did she get into this marriage? We never know.
1: It's a really bizarre start the movie because it also seems strange that she's interested in solving the mystery of his life given that when he was alive She had seemingly no interest whatsoever like a she's already on the road to divorcing him So clearly she shouldn't like him that much by the end, but B When presented with this big mystery, she's like well I must dig in and I'm like why is now the time for you to start asking fucking questions
0: She's so blasé about the very real life-threatening crisis that she has been enmeshed in. Every time someone comes to her with some new problems, she's like, oh, wow.
1: The remake of this movie as it exists, based on the trailer, looks fucking atrocious. But I think that this is a film that would benefit from an update because I think that the lead character does need to be viewed as something other than pretty young lady, which is all anyone's interested in writing her as.
0: An interesting wrinkle to
1: that is... Cary Grant was really uncomfortable with the age difference between
0: them. He was basically like, I'm a creepy old man. And this is a young woman because there's a 25 year age gap between them. She's 33. So he's 58. He actually worked with the screenwriter to make Reggie the sexual aggressor that she was going to be pursuing the sexual relationship between the two of them. And that's why there's so many age jokes in it. Which is an interesting choice, but it winds up being Reggie's only defining characteristic is that she is real, real horny.
1: Yeah, and it creates a huge problem because her character has no motivation to be interested in him. Like, it makes sense that he is interested in her because she is a consistent person throughout the film. Whereas he comes up to her like four times and is like, everything you've heard about me in the past several hours has been a flat out lie. And she's like, well, I love you. And it's like, no, that's not the response to that reveal.
0: <laughs> that's really true. Cary Grant does describe her at one point as a pretty girl with an outrageous manner. <laughs> and I think that's much of what they were
1: going for. Yeah. It also doesn't make sense that she's desperate for romance right now. She was about to file for divorce, and then her husband died, and all of her belongings were sold off. The only thing left in her apartment was an inexplicable amount of hay. Thank you,
0: because let's dive back into the beginning of the movie. So Reggie returns home to find her apartment abandoned for 50 years. I don't know what was going on in the set decoration department, everything is so dusty. What is happening? That just happened a couple days ago.
1: Yeah, she comes home to, like, tumbleweeds rolling through the (laughs) living room. I'm like, but okay, and this is another problem I have with this plot. The first thing they establish is your husband sold all of your belongings at auction for a quarter million dollars. But the rest of the movie is pursuing the fact that he stole a quarter million from the government. Why did he need... To auction off all their belongings if the quarter million isn't from the auction.
0: I was thinking about this today, and I think Charles stole the money, and that is how he funded his lifestyle. I will say though, it took me a lot of thinking about that today to reach this conclusion. So, like, not great movie. Again, this is a movie about Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant hanging out and him pulling funny faces and showering in a weird manner that is delightful.
1: Yes, that's the movie that I want to watch. Her (laughs) ex-husband shouldn't even be in it. The spies that are looking for the $250,000 are in a different film that I'm not watching. I want Audrey Hepburn and her dad boyfriend.
0: (laughs) I don't mind the complicated plot as much as you do. I wish it felt more grounded in something that felt real. Like If she had any pieces of the puzzle to fill in... I think it would be a better movie in the same way that like a Da Vinci code or something where like where you have the other person who's part of solving the crime, like putting together the pieces together that they each bring a piece of specialized knowledge. And she doesn't bring any of that. She brings a, a some moxie,
1: but mostly it's like Audrey Hepburn running away
0: or trying to like Mount Cary Grant.
1: A mystery is about clues slowly being revealed and you put them together bit by bit. This film is more interested in just being like, hey, we're going to tell you a thing. In 20 minutes, we're going to tell you that was a lie and we're going to tell you something else. And then in 20 (laughs) more minutes, that will be a lie and we'll tell you something else instead. There's not a progression. It's just like, hey, these are the new facts and you should run with them until we erase them from existence. (laughs) The
0: movie does do a good job of showing you the stamps very early Did you figure out before the movie told you that that was where Charles had hidden the money?
1: I did not get the stamps thing, though. I did know that something's in there. I followed the red herring that the movie wanted me to, which is that the letter referenced the dentist and he had the can of toothpaste. And I was like, something's going to be buried in the can of toothpaste because no one had opened it.
0: That is an excellent opportunity to step back again to the plot, which we're supposed to be talking about, and we are increasingly flying away from a general structure for our podcast, but I'm into it, and we're going to keep doing it, because this is something we do for free, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I'm not gonna, anyway, a massive, massive shout-out to Jacques Morin, who plays Detective Inspector Jean Grandpierre, who I think he plays, like, Detective Grandpa. <laughs> I think this is his name in French. And he's... I just want to check that. Is that correct? Inspector Big, Big Peter? Peter.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh. that's a plot detail I would have been interested in.
0: <laughs> well, that's the kind of work we do here on Replaying Favorites. The research
1: that matters. <laughs> and by research, you mean taking French in high school. <laughs>
0: And then the extra step of Googling the Wikipedia and clicking through to his Wikipedia page. So, you know, anyway, um, Jacques Morin does such great work as the inspector who faced with just a confounding person who is the only possible lead that he has in this crime. The whole interaction about the dentist and she's like, and what did you learn? And he's like, your appointment has been changed is such a great line delivery.
1: I feel like he's the only person who knows that he's in both movies. Like, he is both the person who's actually solving a spy thriller and a person looking at Audrey Hepburn being like, are you a fucking ninny? What is your deal?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and they take the time to put him in the back of a few shots where he's, like, trying to solve the mystery and just being absolutely confounded by Audrey Hepburn not existing in this plane
1: of existence. She's busy snacking. It was a weird, like, Tom Cruise and a few good men moment where I was like, maybe now is not the time to be actively eating.
0: No, she snacks through the entire movie. Anytime she gets stressed, she wants to eat. And it is one of my favorite character details about Reggie. It is, in fact, her only personality trait.
1: <laughs> yeah, She wants almonds and (laughs) Cary Grant's dick, end of list.
0: And sometimes a chicken sandwich. This is how broken our culture is, is that I am so excited about the prospect of extremely slim Audrey Hepburn being fed food during a movie and having that be part of her character. It thrills me to see a woman eat on camera, and it is such an indictment of everything about our culture.
1: There's a lot to unpack there, (laughs) and I'm just not going to do it. That's what we also bring you on Replaying Favorites. Some ideas and no follow through. (laughs) Listen, if you want to go listen to Maintenance Phase, which is all about fad diets, I'd recommend it. They seem to have information over there.
0: We have none. Okay, so let's talk about where Reggie winds up next. After her interview with Inspector Big Peter, she winds up meeting with Walter Matthau, who plays CIA agent Bartholomew. They eat sandwiches together. This is such a weird scene.
1: I gotta say... (laughs) <laughs> I really wish they had more interaction in this movie because Walter Matthau is just a delight to watch. Like, he has the most on screen charisma. He's just shining, and Audrey Hepburn is obviously a luminous being. And so the fact that the movie isn't more consistently about the two of them also made me sad because I loved watching them together.
0: All I could think about was how many sandwiches did Walter Matthau have to eat during the taping of that scene? Uh, It's such a great performance. He's so young and he's so dynamic in a way that I don't really understand. And I don't know if I've ever seen him be so charismatic.
1: Yeah, I think we are used to Walter Matthau from the Dennis the Menace grumpy old men days. Obviously, he had to do career work to get to the point where he was always that grumpy old man. So it was really interesting to see this as like the starting point of what earned him that decades-long career. And I totally get it. Like, I would have given him more movies after this, too.
0: Also incredible about the scene is when he, in a detailed way, explains to Audrey Hepburn what the CIA does. It's such an incredible piece of history to watch that happen, because, like, now there's we have a cultural shorthand for what the CIA is
1: and does While the movie knows enough about government agencies to be able to put that explanation in the script, it doesn't know that you need more than a lunch break to break into a foreign (laughs) embassy. I wish that they had not taken the time to explain how he got that office because the explanation is dumb.
0: Secondarily, you spend most of the film wondering why the CIA would put this American national at risk for no reason. And then at the end of the movie... You realize that the Treasury Department of the United States has put an American national on her own to solve a mystery and to potentially get shot at to the tune of $250,000. What the fuck, guys? That's very
1: bad. Interestingly, the fact that Walter Matthau showed no concern for Audrey Hepburn's safety was how I intuited pretty early on that he was going to be the bad guy. Uh, look at you. He only ever cared about the money and about her sticking around. Like, when she says she's going to leave, he's like, absolutely not. Let's meet. The specificity, not just of you shouldn't do it, but we have to meet up, felt like someone buying time. Like, he's not, like, proposing an alternative solution. He's like, I got to think of something. So let's get this bitch on a train and I'll think about it while she's traveling. (laughs) Though, to your point... The Cary Grant reveal then makes it clear the movie wasn't that smart about thinking about it because the government still is okay with Audrey Hepburn possibly dying because we need three stamps.
0: It's just the exact same plot, just with a
1: different agency and a different dude. So I thought it was well thought out. I was wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so again, back to the plot.
1: Honestly, if you're still listening to this podcast at this point, you know that we're not going to stick to the plot in a linear fashion. That's not why you're here.
0: I mean, also, if you want to read the plot of a movie, you can just go to Wikipedia.
1: You don't need to devote 45 minutes to an hour of your time each week for this nonsense. Oh my god, no one's coming to this podcast to learn about a movie beforehand. I can't imagine someone's like, should I watch Charade? Let's see what Chris and Bree think.
0: (laughs) Guys, why do you come here at all? We don't know, but we do appreciate it. We're on Twitter at Replaying Faves. We're on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. If you want to leave a review, please go ahead and do so. We're going to
1: stop doing the socials. We don't care. No, I do care. I would like another review. (laughs) I need to be told that you love me.
0: (laughs) Speaking of pseudo-sexual situations, um, we then go with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn to a very bangin' French 60s club to play the Pass the Orange game. What do you think about the scene, Chris?
1: Okay. I need all the information. And I say need, but I made no attempt to look it up myself. But <laughs> the woman who Cary Grant takes the orange from deserves possibly 600 Oscars. She's astral projecting to her happy place as (laughs) Cary Grant just rubs his face all over her. You can see her hating it and willing herself to another plane of existence. It is the most fucking phenomenal nonverbal performance of the entire decade. I haven't seen the rest of the movies from this decade. I don't care.
0: A total also testament to Cary Grant, perhaps one of the only people who could get away with doing the scene without making it look as disgusting and creepy as the actual things that he's performing is. Like, he's so beautiful and gentle and kind and winsome, and he could fondle you in the bath and you'd be like, oh,
1: Cary. He does convey a really nice apologeticness throughout. Like, you can feel him giving a nonverbal I am so sorry that my nose is in your bosom right now like he doesn't (laughs) like it any more than she does she's just frowning through it a really nice detail is that she is the absolute last person in that bar to stand up like she doesn't want to be doing it (laughs) before he motorboats her but then she's like this is exactly what she feared would happen this is her worst nightmare
0: (laughs) she's like I knew it I knew it I do think it's one of the other scenes that Shows the transition between the 50s and the 60s, you can just like feel the go go boots like coming.
1: Yeah, there's a real sort of European looseness about it. It's like, hey, strangers, let's rub up on each other. And it's like, wow, this took a turn.
0: <laughs> and I think that's probably why this movie was so appealing to an American audience. Well, full stop, but especially after the Kennedy assassination, it was that like, it was a trip to Europe. It's like a vacation where you hang out with these like two glamorous friends of yours who like have a pretty anodyne relationship. Like the one thing that I think that I've kind of alluded to before is that while Cary Grant and Hepburn have what is supposed to be like a very like sexual relationship, I don't think that works at all. I just think they give a vibe of like two great friends that I totally want to watch hang out.
1: The romance does feel like a misfire. All that she gets from him is, I'm too old. I am lying to you. I don't have any romantic interest. Those are three explicitly stated things. And she, after each of those statements, is like, Are you sure? Don't you want to fuck? And it's like, girl, this is the least healthy thing I've ever seen.
0: And if I'm being perfectly honest... If the genders were swapped, this would be a real different movie and I would be screaming. Like the scene where she's like, come shower in my hotel room. Get the fuck in my hotel room. I tricked you into coming into my hotel room and now you're going to shower in here is kind of creepy, actually, and doesn't feel super consensual.
1: Yeah, no, you never want to see a situation in which one person has to close and lock the door to keep you there. That's not... An indicator of the very healthiest romantic relationship around.
0: (laughs) It is jumping ahead in the plot a little bit. But speaking of showers, can we just talk about the absolutely delightful Cary Grant showering in a full suit scene? I have to imagine a lot of that was ad-libbed because Audrey Hepburn looks like she is barely keeping it together.
1: It is really funny. It initially tripped me up mostly because I think the movie had gotten a little more serious by that point. And so I was surprised that we went back into Zany Town. Once we were there, I was like, oh! good, this is the movie that I thought we were doing. Like, I was much happier when we got there. It was like someone changed the channel on me, you know?
0: Yeah, the characters in this movie are never as concerned as they should be about three armed men staying in the same hotel room with this one woman, especially after we learn that it is easy to break into her hotel room.
1: Okay, can we talk about why these three men conspiracy conspicuously show up at the funeral. This is the worst spy craft in creation. It is a fully empty funeral. Neither of them have any friends.
0: Yeah, it's such an iconic scene of just a widow and her friends sitting alone. Then just these three individuals coming in, each trying something different to ensure that this man is dead.
1: We know that all three of them are working together. Certainly one of them could have verified his death and left it alone.
0: Yeah, they're all staying at the same hotel, for God's sake. It's very silly.
1: And I get it that eventually none of them trust each other, but at this point in the story, they are all a team. There is no tactical advantage to revealing all three of their faces to the one person they need to steal $250,000 from. And that's also before they realize that there is a full-on police investigator sitting in the back. I
0: know. You think, like, Any of them would just shoot a glance at the cop who looks so much like a cop.
1: Hire a stranger to go prick him with a pin.
0: But also, these are not the smartest criminals in the world. They also kidnap a child. I do like that they instantly regret it. The movie knows that the kid is an asshole, which I kind of appreciate.
1: (laughs) I mean, I regretted them bringing him back into the plot. That was a problem for me. But it was nice that it was another misstep to all involved except
0: that nobody cares about it. Because what happens after that is that Reggie and Cary Grant get their hands on the kid and then the kidnappers depart. And they're like, okay, well, let's get to searching the rooms. And it's like, no, 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 we need to call the police. And we need to call the child's mother. And she like blase calls her after and is like, yeah, we got him. It's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, I had notes about that. I also had notes that there is some initial talk about how No crime has been proven, so we can't arrest any of these three men. But certainly, once we know that these three men kidnapped a child, we could start pressing charges.
0: Yes, yes, we should definitely, definitely do that. I would also like to give a special shout out to Sylvie, played by Dominique Manon, who has ice water in her veins. This girl hears about her friend's divorce and is like, that makes sense. And then her friend's husband is killed and she shows up at the funeral. And is like, that makes sense. And then her child is kidnapped. And like a day later, she's like, oh, I let him go run around the stamp market on his own. He's five.
1: <laughs> of all the characters that make no sense, she might make the least. She is there to be like, hello, I am a plot device.
0: I love her. I just think she doesn't give a shit about anything in her life, and she's hoping that someone steals her son and is like, "Oh no, you have returned my son to me." <laughs> she's like, "All right, now it is time to take him to the stamp market where I will lose him again." <laughs> That's my French accent, everyone. Great. It was a pretty solid
1: French accent. I was about it. I feel like it went a little check there at the end. I don't know. No, it's I. I maybe a little Canadian French. It was very Celine Dion. <laughs>
0: That's what people always say. So similar to Celine deal about me. <laughs>
1: that, is, that is... I don't
0: understand. Why are you laughing?
1: I don't... I'm just laughing at how often <laughs> it happens. It's like uh, the yeah. first thing I think of when I think of you is like how it's so very Celine-esque you are.
0: Mm, indeed. So obviously a lot of other plot points happen before and after Jean-Louis or whatever the fuck his name is, is captured. Um, and at that point, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn go on a boat ride together, which is a very weird boat cruise, both in terms of, like, the technology that was used to produce it, but also, like, the entire boat ride itself.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's, like, a common thing in 60s (laughs) Paris boat rides that you just turn off the lights and shine a spotlight on all the couples making out. Like, I couldn't tell if I was supposed to think that was normal. I didn't.
0: You take a boat cruise to go, like, narc out people making out along the river? What
1: the fuck, guys? What a weird boat cruise. And the thing is, it couldn't be a regular occurrence because if it was, you wouldn't go make out there anymore. Like, it has to be a one-off and it doesn't make a lick of sense. Like, when did they prepare the spotlight? What's happening?
0: No one ever comments on the making
1: out people. It's not a plot point. It's just something weird that occurs for no reason. Oh my God! To that end, can we discuss the scene in which Walter Matthau is apparently doing squats on the other end of the phone while Audrey Hepburn (laughs) talks to him? What was that? I am legitimately the most confused I've ever been watching a movie talking about that scene.
0: The movie is just weird, and it seems to be weird for weird's sake, which I kind of like. The scene at Audrey Hepburn's work is equally strange. Her friend is in her booth. And then Cary Grant comes in, and they're having this full-on conversation while a man is giving a speech looking directly at her. So like, it just seems like no one at her work is doing work. See,
1: I had a huge problem with that scene because I thought that it just didn't take her job seriously. I was really offended that Cary Grant was like, hey, I know you're busy doing something important with international politics, but I would like to kiss your neck. And I was like, motherfucker, she's earning money. You know she just lost all of her, like, riches. It was very disrespectful, and I never hated him more than in that moment. Yeah, it's not great. And, like, it's a very 60s thing of, in the same way that, like, they don't take her smarts seriously in the, like, mystery solving. They just sort of don't acknowledge that she's doing an important, skilled thing. Because even the script, he's like, hey, don't you have to finish your work? And she's like, no, let's just go to the place where my husband was a week ago. Like, there's no urgency to get there. But she's like, whatever, it's just a job.
0: Fuck it. I'm just glad she's taking herself being killed seriously by that point, because earlier in the movie, she's just been like, oh, I don't know. Let's go out to dinner.
1: What she's serious about moment to moment is ephemeral.
0: I mean, that's kind of how women are, aren't they? Changeable. I mean, the movie has a couple of lines about how like, oh, you know how women are. And it's like, all right, fine.
1: Yeah, they have one reference to women being better spies than men. And the rest of the time they're like, but mostly they're just silly little dithering things, aren't they? And I'm like, well, no. What's
0: nice about being so far away from that is that like, I don't really take that to an offensive place anymore. I'm just like, okay,
1: what a silly time period you lived in. To the, this is a thing we did back then that we don't do now situation. I had a moment of wondering if we were intended to pick up a queer subtext that we weren't allowed to put in the text. When Tex and Glasses What's-His-Face are talking to each other, Tex like rubs the back of his neck a couple times in a way that is quite familiar, shall we say? I feel like this movie
0: also trades on Cary Grant's ambiguity more so than any other movie I've seen of his since Bringing Up Baby. So like, I don't know, there's like a little bit of a queer vibe in this movie. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: what surprised me about those two characters specifically. Like, James Coburn is obviously played off as this very butch, swaggery cowboy of a man. So I was caught off guard and I was like, oh, he's being very actively paired with this sort of nebbish little dude. So, like, the more they were together and the more they were physically touching each other, the more I was like, is this progressive? Like, I didn't know what to do.
0: (laughs) But I like about this movie is that I don't think the movie knows about most of the things that it's doing. At the top, I described this as a Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made, except that it was actually made by two very musical theater people. So Stanley Donan, who directed this movie, also directed Singing in the Rain, as well as On the Town. And the scriptwriter, Peter Stone, After this, wrote 1776, the musical, the stage play. And I feel like you get some of that musical theater vibe in this movie.
1: Oh, you get a lot of it. I think it's really interesting that anyone would call this the movie that Hitchcock never made because Hitchcock is really good at setting a tense, dangerous atmosphere. And as you have pointed out, no one ever acts as though they're in danger in this film, even. Actively during a fight where his back gets cut open and he is dangled off the edge of a building, Cary Grant is as blasé as if he had just gotten out of bed with Audrey Hepburn.
0: Side point to that, Cary Grant in excellent shape
1: at almost 60. He's good for almost 60 in the 60s. I'll give him that. I mean, what did you expect, a six-pack? It's not a body comment. I think the extended fight scene is a hair janky.
0: Oh yeah, it goes on far too long. I'm going to make the bold move to redirect us back to the plot. Please. So at this point, several of the people chasing Reggie have been killed themselves, and it is time for us to try to figure out what the hell Charles was doing with this money. And so we all converge on the park, and then there's a ridiculous scene of James Coburn realizing it's the stamps through a series of shots and music, and then Carrie Grant recognizing it's the stamps through a series of shots and music. <laughs>
1: I was almost incredibly excited about this scene because they do both get back to the hotel and realize the stamps are gone. And this was the moment where it could have been that Audrey Hepburn figured it out first. Right. But instead, she is the third and final person to go through the stamp market and have the exact same montage again. And I was like, God damn it. She accidentally got it right. (laughs) I don't even think she
0: picks it up from context clues. I think she picks it up from her conversation with Sylvie, who again is just like, my child has wandered away. C'est la vie. And they finally realize that the stamps that she has given to Jean-Louis are actually worth a ton of money. And then there's a very awkward scene with the stamp collector guy who, bless him, was just like, Here you are, child. Enjoy these group of stamps and then like takes them back to his lair to
1: explore them more deeply. Oh my god. The fact that he has the balls to say, I'm not a thief, and I'm like, sir, (laughs) you took the stamps, immediately closed shop, and ran away. And then he's like, well, of course I was going to give them back. I'm like, how in the world were you going to give them back? Of all the lies in this movie, the stamp collector saying I'm not a thief is the most outrageous.
0: I also love that he has no follow-up questions of any kind. Like, where did you get these stamps? Or should I call the police? Or anything else? He's just like, well... Good luck to you with the most rare stamps and most expensive stamps I've ever seen in my lifetime of stamp collecting.
1: Oh, yes. This movie establishes that in the 60s in France, questions had not yet been invented.
0: No one has any questions. And again, Sylvie's just like quietly watching her life unfold in front of her. I love her so much. I want a whole movie of just Sylvie. Ice cold water in her veins. Proceeding through a series
1: of difficult and dangerous situations. Yeah, we're gonna figure out that she was the inventor of Xanax or something. Like,
0: oh man, I really wish Sylvie was the actual thief. That would be fucking clutch.
1: Wow, that would have been great because she's the only one who's been. I mean, because there aren't any characters in this movie, she has been there the entire goddamn time. Yeah, she's actually been in all the key
0: scenes. So this is almost a two-hour movie. As always, I think about. 20 to 30 minutes could have been shaved off many of them in the metro station, as well as the (laughs) extended sequence with Walter Matthau. I will say there are some really cool shots set up of her hiding in the phone booth and then of her and Grant racing alongside the columns. Like there's some really nice cinematography that's done there. And then eventually we learn that Walter Matthau is the big bad. Your thoughts on this revelation? It sounds like you figured it out pretty early on.
1: I was pretty sure he was going to be the one that did it. I'm torn, because on the one hand, I would never ask for fewer shots of Audrey Hepburn in that beautiful yellow coat. But also, if you're going to be dodging around trying to blend in, I might have picked a brown or black coat for the event.
0: I would have chosen something that would camouflage a little bit better, yes.
1: There's also a scene earlier on when she's trying to follow Cary Grant without being noticed, but she's in, like, an all-white ensemble and, like, again, like, a knee-high boot that I was just like, girl, you are the most beautiful woman on the planet in, like, the chicest clothing. Your earlier comment about women being better spies has been undercut by your inability to go unnoticed. To the point that a German man has to chase her down the street yelling. (laughs)
0: A special shout out to the man who plays that German man who brings a lot of comedy out of just the lines, Fraulein, Fraulein, and her being so wild to him that I can't imagine what he said when he got home from his vacation.
1: He has a more complex emotional journey in that one scene than anyone else in this entire film. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: After we're done with the scene of the columns, we're then I guess breaking into a theater that has left all of its doors open.
1: This whole sequence raised a lot of placement questions about where everyone was, because there's a lot of individual shots of people ducking or walking or looking around a corner. Going up and down stairs. This is the part that felt the most extraneous, because I was like, these people could be in different fucking buildings. I don't know.
0: And Walter Matthau is now going to take the world's longest journey across a theater stage My note is just like, okay, can we decide on this fucking trap door handle? Like it that scene went on for like 5 minutes and I don't understand.
1: Again, there's Hitchcock tension and then there is <laughs> sitting on the couch screaming, "Pull the lever, buddy!" at the screen, which is where I was.
0: I mean, all you have to do is catch one leg. Like even if he falls,
1: it's going to maim him. Also, if every single square is a trap door, pull six or seven levers. Don't feel like you gotta get the right one on the first try.
0: All the levers at once, what's he gonna do? Best luck, he lands on his dick, a la cats.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the best case scenario, yes.
0: Well, because the other case scenario is that Walter Matthau falls to his death across like a, maybe it's a 15, 20 foot drop. I feel like that would break your ankles, but maybe not like
1: kill your entire body. I think the problem is that They show his death, with just looks like him landing on his feet and falling over. I know.
0: (laughs) And then Cary Grant, like, rushing over and being like, well, he's dead. Let's tell no one, I guess.
1: Yeah, seriously, does that theater have a janitor? Because he's going to have a bad day tomorrow.
0: (laughs) We are then going to return the money to the embassy. For reasons that are totally unexplained, Cary Grant is still pretending to be a crook who wants the money for himself. And so then there's a big reveal of him as the
1: actual treasury worker, Mr. Brian Crookshanks. The famously armed and dangerous U.S. Treasury Department. Or again, the U.S.
0: Treasury Department, who is just like, hey, let's lie and work with criminals and kill a man in order to get back $250,000 that we spent during World War II. Do you know how much money the U.S. spent in World War II? He gives a fuck.
1: Again, it's not even believable that he could get into his office before she opens that door.
0: Or that his secretary isn't like, he's not in the office right now.
1: He hasn't been in the office in weeks. He's been off gallivanting with you on boats, (laughs) watching people make out.
0: It is not at all, but mostly redeemed by Cary Grant pulling the silliest face I've ever seen him pull. What I like about this movie is that it is sort of Cary Grant's swan song, and he just has a great time. Everything about him is just charm and suave and a total lack of threat, but also a strange lack of sexuality. It's a very pleasant mode that I wish we still kept men in.
1: He's lovely throughout, and I don't want to fault him for the many logical inconsistencies that he's asked to dance through which he does with aplomb but the further his character goes the less it connects to reality in any way especially at the end when he's like and we'll go get married and i'm like you met her this weekend
0: except that in a real turn from how this podcast usually goes we have a woman who is happy to bed down with a man that she knows nothing about because they've had a couple of conversations
1: and he has not been truthful with her. Usually it's the opposite. So, progress? I'm not gonna reciprocate that thumbs up. I don't believe it is progress, no. (laughs) Again, it is the worst time to propose marriage because this is him being like, so everything that we've done up to this point has again been a lie, so we are starting (laughs) fresh. Would you marry me? The answer should be, I am running in the other direction and directly into the river.
0: (laughs) But I'm pretty sure she's eating again, so instead she's just like, of course. (laughs)
1: Listen, I love eating as much as the next person. But if you propose to me mid-sandwich, that does not up your chances.
0: Well, let's see the sandwich and the man. (laughs) All right. Well, we have reached the end of this charming, if slightly vapid film. Chris, what are your final thoughts?
1: The more we talk about this movie, the more I see its flaws, but simultaneously, the more I like it. It was fun. It was flawed. It was fine.
0: It is a very fun film and it has some good filmmaking. I think that the story is a little convoluted and I think that the characterization is a little weak. But if you can't find joy in watching Audrey Hepburn watch Cary Grant shower in an entire suit, I don't know what's wrong with you. So watch Charade if you didn't watch it. I mean, it'll be totally ruined for you at this point, but you'll at least get to experience the lack of twists, I
1: suppose. Yes, as we've established, You're all listening to this podcast to decide whether to watch a movie, so two thumbs up, you should watch Charade. (laughs) We got to four thumbs up. Great work. Oh, I said I wouldn't do it, and I did. See, this movie (laughs) cast its spell on me. I have succumbed. It's a silly little movie, and I really like it, and I'll watch it again. Well, having finished this favorite, there's only one thing to do, but watch another. Brian. (laughs)
0: Don't sound so excited. You're just like, well, the grim progress towards the grave will come for us all. So we must watch another film. So we are we're back on the fives. We are going to try switching up the format another time, which is to say we are going to watch 1986's Flight of the Navigator, a movie that Chris and I both loved as children, but that we have not heard from in a very long time.
1: The only movie I saw before 10 that didn't have tits in it. Just kidding. (laughs)
0: And look at how you turned out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Gay as a goose.
0: (laughs) So lesson learned, everybody. Um, Chris, what do you remember about Flight of the Navigator?
1: I remember there's a silver spaceship and I think it might be sassy. I think it has a voice, but that's really all.
0: I feel like I remember this movie pretty well, to be honest. I remember that it's set in Fort Lauderdale. The opening scene has a border collie in a frisbee catching contest.
1: None of that rings a bell.
0: Okay, well, why don't you join us, everybody and Chris, as we rewatch Flight of the Navigator, and we'll see you next week.
1: I'm busy that week, sorry. See you next (laughs) week. I'll be there too. (laughs) Bye, everybody.
0: Oh, God, imagine a podcast in which I'm by myself. Well, goodbye, everybody, and meditate on that, and continue to subscribe. Goodbye.
1: I'm not going to be the podcast that tells you to take a pin to your eye. We're going to leave that out.